Hey, welcome to High Resolution, and my name is Bobby Goshal. And I'm Jared Arandia. We sit down with 25 masters of the design industry, and if you're new to the show, here's what we do. We find the best people to talk about their processes on how they approach, communicate, and deploy design. And for the last few weeks since we launched the show, you guys have been reaching out to us with your feedback and your comments and your, your questions. Please continue to do that. We love that. We need that. In this episode, we're speaking with Kat Holmes. Kat is the Principal Director of Inclusive Design at Microsoft. She'll focus on what is inclusive design, how her team operates as a special ops unit, and how to deploy a human-centered process. We'll get to the show right after this quick message from our partner, so stick around. Thanks to Squarespace for their support. Whether you need a domain, a website, or an online store, make your next move with Squarespace. Visit squarespace.com and enter the code HIGHRESOLUTION, one word for 10% off your first purchase. Kat, thanks for joining us. Thank you, thanks for having me. Awesome. So first question for you, uh, what's one thing about design that's clear to you that you don't feel is so clear to other people? Gosh, one thing that's clear about design. Um, you know, I think for me, the interactions that happen between human beings, um, the relationships that we build, the way that we understand kind of intuitively or culturally what's appropriate for each other, those kind of interactions, that that is actually an um, incredible source of um, inspiration, insight for how to think about human-computer interaction. And there's a lot of different areas where that could probably apply, but I spend most of my time thinking about computers. And so, you know, as things get more complex, that it's not about having to conjure up things from thin air. It's really like, how well do I understand how I relate to my, my family? Or how do I, you know, observe the interaction between two people they're meeting for the first time? Being able to take that dynamic and understand the interaction and apply that to our design, our, um, the principles, the, the little nuances that make something human and humane, um, that that resource is rich and there's a lot of places where we can bring that to um, design as a analog and as a, a model to think about better interactions. Do you think that observation happens before you decide to solve a problem or do you feel like the problem arises once you observe the thing? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if they're chicken and egg, kind of it happens in iteration. Um, I definitely think it takes a shift in mindset, like it takes a shift in what observations uh, we make. And that shift usually comes from taking it down to like the micro interaction um, between people. You know, we think about micro interactions in a, a user interface and all yeah. the little steps, but when you start to think about micro interactions between people, nice. and you start to think, oh, what role could this play? You know, it's just, if you think about a bodyguard and a uh, <laughs> client, you know, and you're trying to design a security-based uh, interface, is there something you can learn about those micro-interactions and oh, those little steps of um, how you, I, I'm not bodyguard, so, yeah. but, you know, there's a consideration that happens. And, and so once you start to play with that, you know, like what is the role of that technology and what are those micro interactions that happen between people? Um, yeah. I think it, it starts to show up. You, you can't unsee it and you start yeah. to see it in many places uh, in the world that you interact with people. Yeah. And it's interesting because the, the bodyguard example is, I, it's, it's funny yeah. because 
human beings have been protecting other human beings far longer than technology has been protecting. <laughs> so like you've got millennia of, of reference material to go back to and, and exactly. learn. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Just call one of your parents. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's a lot, a lot to work with there, yeah. and that's and some of the um, things that we've, uh, you know, played with is um, as we've been thinking about, you know, security is a very, very big, important topic coming up. But <clears throat> recreating like a airport border control yeah. system, like just recreating even in our studio with every little step, and uh, you know, bringing engineers and designers through that, but. You know, in some places we have like don't make any eye like a, a border agent doesn't make any eye contact with you, but is asking you for your most personal information. Mm -hmm. um, it's essentially what we do with technology at times. We're like, welcome, give me all your information, <laughs> and move down to the next step. Hope for the best, right? Yeah, and so you know, when when someone kind of makes that correlation, oh man, at least a little eye contact would have made it uh, uh, a moment where I could know who I was giving my information yeah, to, then, you know, um, you can really understand that viscerally and apply that. You remember that when you're thinking about yeah. the design of a system. So talking about the design of a system, um, design is oftentimes seen as a department, right? Yeah. Um, but you see it as a way of working. Yes. And I'm really curious to, I'm really curious to hear, like, I, I want you to expound on that idea, really, because um, yeah. it's, it's pretty new to a lot of people. Yes, it's um, it's controversial. I find in yeah. places too because um, there's a lot of expertise and training of designers, yeah. right? So it's not to diminish that at all. But thinking about design as a verb um, rather than a noun mm. or a title um, has really shifted. I think the relationship that non-designers. <laughs> have to the discipline. And there's been a lot of conversations, of course, about design thinking. I think you've seen the resonance of that because it, people feel like this is an access into the design mindset. But when you really talk about the practice of design and what it takes to um, you know, iterate and, and frame a problem through a human lens, um, those are things that everyone who creates a product for people should know how to do. And um, in, in my experience, the the things that have made the biggest difference is the the industry is changing. You know, again, I work in technology specifically, so um, the the pure graphic design, industrial design um, uh, disciplines are are fundamental still. But <clears throat> what I do today, there was no there was no degree for that when I was in school. There was no degree for interaction, experience design at the system level. Um, so really a lot of this is drawing from those disciplines and trying to bring together the new things that need to we need to know. Like um, you know, cognitive behavior and human factors combined with um, psychology and uh, and art, visual arts. Like, how do you bring all those together? We have a huge um, amount of work that goes into thinking about holographic mixed reality experiences. Like, where were you supposed to learn that, yeah. you know, when I was in school X number of years ago? Um, so that that part of design as a verb, I think that the way the industry is changing really has pushed that um, to the to the front of how we we have to all be learning at the same time, and we have to draw in new disciplines to do that. Um, I think also then from a role of the designer, the important shift is um, 
to a point of leadership. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's not it's not for everyone to you know, not everybody feels comfortable stepping into like I'm, I'm a designer, I therefore have an, a responsibility to help bring this design yeah. uh, method to other disciplines. But you know, it, it is it is about stepping into the leadership of that. We want to you know, lead with design, then we need to be the leaders that can do that for our organizations. And, you know, that takes, it takes a little work on ourselves, you know, how we communicate, um, you know, becoming a translator across the languages of business and yeah. engineering and the creative arts. Um, so I, I think it's an exciting space. I think it's something that, um, you know, is, it's inevitable um, if we are growing design into, um all these other areas of, of experiences. So, you know, stepping into that uh, verb, um, I've just seen it transform designers' careers, but also people who didn't consider themselves designers for a long time and really stepped into like, oh yeah, yeah, what I'm doing, I, yeah, I'm thinking about all these pieces that I am I am designing right yeah. now, you know? So in a sense, design designers kind of become the steward for this Mm-hmm. Verb within their business. There's definitely a, a stewardship is a huge part of it. I think the um, again holding the integrity yeah. of of what is entailed and that like what that entails, um, and also the facilitation of that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, my team uh, is a combination of a lot of different design backgrounds. People come from a lot of different places, but one thing we all had to learn to do, and it was a hard moment for some because it's not always a place of comfort was to become that facilitator to think about how am I drawing out the best thinking in this room full of people from really diverse um, points of view Um, how am I moving us towards an outcome what's the um, balance of structure and flexibility to get there Um, those skills you know those are all things that we can also learn from facilitation and education Um, but that stewardship is is both quiet in the background, and sometimes it means being in the front of the room and, and guiding the conversation. I want to talk a little bit about what you do at Microsoft today. We, yeah. we tend not to spend a whole lot of time on like existing titles and roles and stuff, but you have a very interesting title. Yeah. Um, you're the Director of Inclusive Design. I am. What is inclusive design? What does that mean? Oh, that's good. That's, I'll try to do the short. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time with it. <laughs> Um, you know, honestly, um, I'm learning. I'm learning every day. Yeah. Um, the the best um, definition of inclusive design I've come across so far is is designing a diversity of ways for people to participate in an experience. Um, so they all have a sense of belonging in that space, but it starts with the inclusion of people who are most excluded mm. from an experience. So that starting point of um, you know, we've talked a lot about the heritage of accessibility, um, which is often an afterthought in a lot of engineering and design schools. Um, you know, the, the heritage of universal design, which, you know, the curb cut on the sidewalk is the quintessential example of, um, you know, a design increasing access. Um, the challenge with universal design, uh, the, I guess the way I say it, the, the ways that universal, universal design has been a, um, difficult to apply to the digital space is it's more um, it's been more of a one size fits all kind of thinking like these principles of every contingency and every um, possible human circumstance that um, could occur. So you think a bit about that curb cut, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got um, sure the transition down to the street, but the moment that that was created, anyone who's blind. 
uh, then suddenly lost that indicator uh, of I'm, so I'm moving in, into moving traffic right now. Can you explain to people what the curb the curb cut is? Just yeah, to, yeah, yeah. So, so um, the the sidewalks that we have in in a lot of um, uh, urban environments, especially um, places where we've created a ramp down yeah. to the street level. Um, so there's easy transition for um, people who use wheelchairs, but also people who are riding a bike or pulling a uh, suitcase yeah. or pushing a stroller all benefit. Even an elderly person, right? Like walking, like instead of climbing up, down. Yeah, exactly. The graded. Yeah, yeah, it's graded. Exactly. Cool. Yeah, and then what, what becomes a challenge then is how to then give an indicator to someone who has low vision or is blind that there's now a transition into the road. And so you see the, the texturing on the, on the curb and then you hear the, you know, the uh, chirping of mm -hmm. the crosswalk. Mm -hmm. And so there's the, all these kind of augmentations that you add on to to make sure it works well for everybody. That's, in my mind, that's universal design. It's that corner where you've got to make sure everybody can pass through safely, but it requires a lot of augmentation. Um, the the thing that's unique about inclusive design is it's more of a one-size-fits-one. Mm -hmm. um, it's about creating something that can fit to your personal, it adapts and fits to your personal uh, needs. Um, it, it changes as your body changes, as your context changes. So it's, it's deeply personalized, but it's also malleable and plastic and can change with you. So that's, that's one long version of um, yeah. inclusive design. And the, the thing that... Um, is most important above all other things is the inclusion of people mm -hmm. in that process. And we've been um, learning a lot about what that looks like, but the, mo the one that really stands out that I really hadn't worked with in other areas of design is um, the expertise, like the human expertise. You know, we were talking earlier about the relationship, the bodyguard or the personal assistant and how they, their expertise and um, creating experience is something we can use when we design technology. But um, in the same way with inclusive design, if we're trying to create experiences <clears throat> for someone who's in a car, right? And um, whatever we design has to have a low cognitive, like it has to not be demanding for your attention and you can't um, use your eyes, right? Your eyes are occupied. Um, well, there's people who've been interacting with technology without the use of vision or you know, through their voice and uh, for a long time through assistive technology and screen readers. And so it's, it's about learning from, spending time drawing from the strength and the expertise of people who interact with technology in a lot of different ways today. And um, that expertise most often comes from uh, people who we consider in the disability or ability community, um, and there's there's plenty to work with to improve experiences specifically for people with disabilities. But the real shift with inclusive design is about bringing um, designers with a, a range of abilities and disabilities into the process. Yeah. After our, our conversation about designing, you know, yeah. um, someone who's been using a screen reader for you know 20 years to code, um, to, to write programs, they're going to have a lot of insight into ways to really navigate and, and make that experience work well for someone who's maybe trying to code in a, um, a, a small device or a limited um, visual uh, mm -hmm. environment. Your screen goes dead. Can you still, you yeah. know, can you still code? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who can. Yeah. yeah. So, so in a sense, to achieve inclusive design, you have to have inclusive stakeholders, like people who actually partake. 
Yes, yeah, and to um, learn from that expertise yeah. that they bring um, as a part of the design process early yeah. and often. But short, short, short of not, if, if, if there are people listening now that are thinking, well, how do I find people mm -hmm. yeah. that have uh, maybe been shortchanged by the design industry so far mm -hmm. uh, with experiences that could actually make the design of our products better? It's hard, it might be hard to find them, mm -hmm. right? Um, so short of that, is the answer then to just spend more time with folks uh, that are disabled, um, or like how like how how would you frame that, or how would you think about that? Um, yes, on all fronts. Like it, it, okay. it it's um, kind of <clears throat> the thing I've noticed is the starting assumption that most people have because we we've yeah. I've done workshops. My team has done workshops with uh, four thousand people in the last year on wow. this topic. So it's been we've been recruiting and finding uh, uh, people with a range of abilities. And what has always blown me away is it's not that far removed from you as you think, yes, you yeah. know what I mean? Like it's- If you don't, if you're not the person, you know someone. That's right, you know someone. And you don't know you yeah, know someone yeah. maybe. Or you do, but you hadn't thought about the relationship between again, the design that you're doing and then right. what expertise exists in your own network. Um, so it is about, I think, committing first to that being part of the design, the way you design, and then knowing what kind of interactions are important to what you're making. You know, I want to think about multiple contexts. I want to think about, you know, how my product will work well in a, a crowded bar. So, you know, have I spent time uh, learning or understanding in my community, um, you know, what uh, already organizations already exist? Um, how much time have I spent um, going to an event, uh, an ASL, uh, only event, and if I put myself in that place to understand the language difference, if I'm the only person who doesn't sign ASL in an event where everybody else does, it, so it's seeking it out once you once you commit yourself, and mm -hmm. there's endless ways to engage and find um, people with a range of abilities and disabilities. It's it's I'm I'm, I'm blown away, and it's mm -hmm. it is the first. Um, whether it's concern or, or people feel as an like designers will feel as an obstacle, like well, it's two obstacles. Usually, it's how do I meet someone, mm -hmm. um, and and to be honest, you know that's a part of why we've worked on the toolkit um, is to make some kind of starting points available to people at a much broader scale, especially if you don't have the maybe um, access or resources. Um, so just having some starting points to um, hear stories from people who are longtime experts in accessibility and, and disability, um, but then also uh, will take you through some of the extraordinary things they do and very ordinary things they do in their lives. Um, you know, and, the, and that second piece for a lot of designers is a concern about um, lowest common denominator. Like, gosh, if I go design something that works well for all of the iterations of colorblindness that are out there. Like, am I gonna end up with something that's just blue and yellow and that, uh, you know, that's all I, yeah. I can work with? And, uh, and that, you know, that, those two things, that how do I meet people and then like, what happens if I end up with something that works for everyone but no one loves? And I think just debunk, we've been debunking both of those. Yeah. You have community, you just need to go ask. Mm -hmm. And then also, um, if you think about that, um, uh, breadth of uh, different consideration, like breadth of considerations mm. for color, as an example, from the beginning, then you will have it built into your process early. You can then use it as a creative constraint as opposed to a legal requirement. 
yeah. um, that you're working with. And the toolkit you're referring to is the Microsoft Inclusive Design Toolkit. Yeah. Which you worked on. Yes. Which is up for an award. Up for an award. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Major uh, award. So, so, before, so before we get to uh, the toolkit, which I think is um, going to be awesome for the audience, uh, the shift from one size fits all to one size fits one yeah. is really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, it's a major mental shift, though, right? Yeah, it is. Um, I would love to hear at least one or two examples of what is a one size fits one mm. product or solution. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll pick I'll pick an easy one from a team that I love working with, and not everybody's familiar with this product, and um, so I also try to tell people so they can check it out because yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's free. It's Please, a free. <laughs> Sorry, we have one in the bag. Three cameras staring you down right now. I'd be remiss if I didn't. But um, no, the, so the reason I love uh, so one one note's a product that's been around a long time, and um, it's not the one that comes. <clears throat> To front of mind for a lot of people, but um, there's a, a, a set of tools that this team created. They call them learning tools, mm-hmm. and they the project started by um, you know this this team works with uh, students with different uh, types of dyslexia mm-hmm. and uh, teachers who lead classrooms with lots of different. Uh, learning levels, learning abilities in that classroom at any one time. I mean, I, don't, I am amazed at the uh, thought that goes into making sure that you know you can reach every student with such a diverse environment. Um, so, from working with both those students and teachers, the, the OneNote team um, developed these learning tools that take any text. In, you know, now you can take a scan of something printed, or it can be something off the web, and um, display it visually in different ways. You can adjust the spacing of the letters, you can adjust the, mm. the, the font, you can um, add the um, kind of syllable elements uh, that break it out. You can call out different notes of grammar, which I would have loved when I was yeah, in school because I was not great at grammar. Um, and then at the same time, you also can, it can um, highlight and read to you while it's visually kind of moving through the paragraph, what's on the page. And the, the, all of those... Um, Practices are out of you know long studied um, you know well researched um, methods of, of working with students with different forms of dyslexia, but bringing it into a digital environment where a student has the control over um, the the visual presentation of that that reading material and that seeing and hearing at the same time is a reinforcement because there's no one form of dyslexia and there's no one form of learning and there's no one form of retaining what you read. Mm -hmm. But we find if you can um, adjust and and make those things work well for you, Mm -hmm. um, then there's a whole other level of retention that's possible. So something like that works. um, We've seen, we make it a free tool for, um, uh, it comes free with OneNote. So, um, but it's made a difference in reading retention and and rate of reading for, uh, for children. And then also for anyone who's learning a language for the first time. So uh, if you're learning English for the first time, we've got some complex grammatical and spelling challenges in our language. So how, especially with American English, right? Yeah. So um, we find that the, the biggest kind of audiences for, for this are, are students and then also anyone who's learning uh, you know, English for the first time. And you wouldn't have always connected those 
those two audiences together yeah. and you're thinking about the design of something. So that's one where it can be. Um, can I just say something like this? This this strikes me as such a Microsoft thing, mm. like the philosophy of Microsoft from the early days has been about like this is it, right? Like yeah. it's, it's all about owning or configuring a product to you. Yes. Uh, it, it isn't the one computer where everything's locked in. It's you can open it and you can, right. you can move stuff around and you can make it faster or slower. Yeah. Uh, but you design it for yourself. And this strikes me as very similar to how Microsoft's philosophy has been throughout its. It's a it's a really great observation. Yeah. yeah. It's it's one of the things that um, you know when we started the work on inclusive design, we actually first asked ourselves. What's our design agenda? Mm-hmm. And and that's something that, you know, as I think about anyone in any company or any, you know, small startup where you're first trying to really bring design to the forefront is to ask like, what's the agenda that design ha- the design brings to the business? Mm-hmm. You know, what's that unique uh, vantage point and the priorities that you have? And for us, one of them was really reconciling a company that makes products for millions if not billions of people with that long heritage of personal computing it's really it was all about like you can customize it as many ways as you want so a lot of us got into technology (laughs) yeah so that tension between what's universal and personal design in the same space i think that's where inclusive design is helping us navigate and make sense of that because at the same time you still want to make you want to be able to use all those options. You don't want to go to the basement of your operating system and have to flip a bunch of switches every time you change something. But how do you make that fluid and fit into your environment, fit to your learning style? You know, you might be reading um, a cookbook versus a, a, you know, I was gonna say Tolstoy, but like you know, some some very you know. Nice. <laughs> when's the last time I read Tolstoy? No, like, I don't know why that popped up, but you know, really uh, in-depth uh, fiction or literature. Yeah. You know, you can you might just even want um, any of us might want to have different ways of engaging with that material. So yeah. that it is. You're right. There is a real DNA there, but at the same time, trying to make it work well for yeah. a lot of different learning styles. The the school example struck me. Because, I mean, I'm left-handed, and I remember in school, like, yeah. you know, we always had those tables where, like, you had the arm oh, to the right, and I was, like, the one kid whose yeah, elbow yeah, was yeah, just yeah, always yeah, down. Yeah. And then I always yeah. try to ask my teacher, like, there has to be, like, and they're, like, they're, like I'm sure they make them, but they're not here. Yeah. And then yeah. that's when I learned about the whole 90%, 10% fact, and I realized, okay, yeah. because I'm the minority in this percentage, yeah. like, I'm not serviced. That's yeah. right. And that was a prime example of one-size-fits-all. Yeah, that's but right. But it was terrible. No, that's right. And it's yeah. this, that, that element of like um, that myth of the average. Yeah. There's a great, great book called The End of Average okay. by Todd Rose, which okay. I highly recommend for anyone who's interested in this topic and just for ge- any designer in general because yeah. it really gets to where that norm and that average um, came from. The idea of a, of a normal didn't always exist. Mm-hmm. There was a moment that it was designed. There was a moment it was constructed and embedded in our thinking that there was a thing called normal. And that became the ideal, and then it became, no, you should be above average. Like, our relationship to what normal is, that book is a really... Wasn't it, wasn't it for, like, marketing purposes? I think I, like, read the story or stick to sell clothes or something at a specific... I, I don't There's know. There's a lot of normalization that happened, like, even down to, like, where your buttons... Are, yeah. Like, your button is on your shirt. Like, mm-hmm. it was this concept of, like, men button themselves, but women are buttoned by other people. Marketers. That's why the buttons There's are... There's a lot going on in there, right? <laughs> Yeah, I can give you a real quick example. Uh, that, you know, I think a lot of it actually came out of um, industrialization yes. and, and you know, mass production. Yeah. But one of the early examples that I love is from the Air Force and um, the first flight deck. Right. The, I love this. You know, so the the first flight deck, uh, cockpit flight deck, 
of fighter uh, uh, planes were um, designed by taking like body measurements of 2,000 pilots, right? And they averaged every single dimension of their body and, you know, I think they probably were all right-handed. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so they took all that information and then they averaged it and they took the number right in the middle. And thought, that must be the perfect pilot. So we're going to design this flight deck to fit that perfect pilot, yeah. right? And everything was fixed in place. And what they found is um, there were a lot of a lot of failures, a lot of crashes. Um, they couldn't attribute to mechanical failure or to pilot error. And um, they, quite frankly, were just running out of pilots um, towards the end of World War II. And in the preparation for uh, the Korean War, um, they really had to go back and take a hard look at what that design, what was not working about that design. And they measured, again, all their pilots and found that nobody actually fit all of those dimensions. Yeah. So no human being perfectly had all the right lengths and yeah. shapes and sizes. Um, and in essence, that normal was everyone and then no one. And that led to a lot of um, advancement innovation and adjustable controls, adjustable seats. You know, if you can move the seat just like three inches this way, like eight times more people could be qualified to be pilots. Um, you know, chin straps. A lot of our automotive, um, you know, cars and safety features in there come from those early, early advancements. So um, that idea of normal, I just love to push on it because we've been kind of as engineers, uh, designers, conditioned to think about 80-20, yes. keep doing this bell curve, but like the 80-20, yeah. and um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit confronting sometimes to say, there is no normal, there is no 80-20, there's only diverse bodies and diverse yeah. people, I mean, just everybody's different, so then what do you do? And that's where we've really leaned on, um, I really lean on thinking about exclusion, right? Like just, what is it you're trying to design right now? And who is going to be unable to use that? Who is most unable to use that, you know, swing set in your backyard or the prosthetic arm that you're um, designing uh, or the, the desk that the student sits in? Like, who is most unable to use that? And then think about what is actually going to serve and adapt that personal fit for someone. So are these things, some of the things that were captured in the Microsoft Inclusive Design Toolkit? Yeah, yeah, some of them there. We, we really focused on... Um, trying to keep the fundamentals yeah. in there, like make it a, a starting point for people. Um, of course, we're experimenting and exploring in lots of different spaces with a lot of different partners. Um, but that toolkit really asserts um, some fundamental principles. Um, and one of them is, it, it, the heart of it really is um, the def like testing that definition of disability. Yeah. And for me, the moment that really cracked my brain open was, um, the World Health Organization uh, defined disability in 2001, and this was a it was a dramatic redefinition um, to a mismatch, an interaction between the features of a person's body and the features of the environment in which they live. And that could be a product, that could be software, that could be a, a you know a room. Um, that mismatch and interaction, you know, really stood out as a concept that we hadn't really thought about as designers before. And anyone who thinks, considers himself an experienced designer, an interaction designer, like whose job is it if it's not yours or mine to raise and lower those, those barriers, those mismatches in interaction? So in that sense, everyone has a disability. 
everyone experiences it. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, there, again, it's important to recognize there are, um, the word, again, words and matter, right? The word disability has a very important connotation yeah. to disability rights movements, to communities. But there's something to also taking the idea of um, understanding that we all experience. Yeah. Uh, and we, because whether it's permanent, temporary, or situational disability, when we can't interact or use a place where we don't fit with the product or environment that we're in, we all experience that. But also, we are all on a, you know aging curve line. There, sure. <laughs> there was a time when we couldn't you know, reach the doorknob. And there will be another time when we are unable to reach the doorknob yeah. because our bodies change with time. And I think that, that back to that, breaking down that idea of normal, um, the most fundamental way to address bias is to take a close look at our own ability bias. You know, if I'm designing something that I can see and I'm designing something assuming that, you know, this is a right-handed uh, person using this product, that ba that's one of the most basic kind of biases we have. It's like, okay, how do we really challenge and think about um, the multiple ways that people interact with this in different environments and, and over time in their life? Thanks again to Squarespace for supporting the show. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to get a domain, create a website, or build an online store. They have beautiful, award-winning designer templates and 24-7 customer service. Our project, High Resolution, is on Squarespace. We chose it because it just made sense. We had a lot of research, writing, preparation for our interviews and traveling to do. We just didn't have the time to waste figuring out how to style or build our site. So we just hopped on Squarespace, checked out their templates, and picked the one that worked for our brand and our style. We were done in less than a day. So if you've been thinking about starting your own website or even online store, start your free trial today at squarespace.com and use the offer code HIGHRESOLUTION, that's one word, to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. We'd also like to thank our friends at Envision for their support. Envision is the world's leading product design platform, powering the future of digital design through their understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world, like Facebook, Capital One, Netflix, and Airbnb. I work with remote teams all the time, and I found that keeping a healthy dialogue is really important. Without it, building strong work relationships gets a lot harder, and that leads to poor collaboration. I've also found that prototypes are a great way for me to show my full vision for a design, and this helps cut down a lot of back and forth. Envision makes all of this really easy. You can rapidly prototype your designs and collaborate across every stage of your project, taking your ideas from concept to code. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone, from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit envisionapp.com slash high resolution for three months free. So there was a moment where you and current head of design at Pinterest, August Ellis Reyes, you and him worked together mm -hmm. at Microsoft. Yeah. There was a moment where you guys had this breakthrough of inclusive design. Mm. And I can see why. I mean, it's a fascinating idea, but it's, it is... It's not an immediately graspable concept to most people. I'm very curious how some of those first meetings went when you, when you guys decided to bring it to the CEO and, and other people in the company. How did you socialize it? Because now it's, you guys have like a manifesto in yeah. the company. This is the way you want to design moving forward. So this was a breakthrough for the company, not just for you, right? So 
how did you socialize this? Um, and how did you get Microsoft excited about it? This is, this is the fun part. This is yeah. where I tell you all the subversive things that there we did. <laughs> 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 um, you know, so, you know, there's, there's a large design community yeah. at Microsoft and um, there's, to your point earlier, I've been a DNA for a long time. There's been a, a culture of um, real personal experiences and the, um, gosh, I think the thing, the moment that really shifted is when we started talking about that design agenda, that, mm -hmm. that reason, like what makes a designer a Microsoft designer? Mm -hmm. And so we started really with the design community and, and um, asking that question. And I think by learning and really actually being curious about what makes it unique, um, it helped us shape something that hadn't really existed for um, uh, the digital space before. So, you know, inclusive design is a, a term that's been around for a long time. It's a practice that's been around, uh, but, the, but it often was used interchangeably with universal design. Mm -hmm. And so what we, I think, the thing I'm most proud of is trying to get a real sharp definition of what it means in the digital age in the digital environment to practice inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, early on, it actually had more to do with designing the language, like the communication and the taxonomy. And what do we mean when we talk about disability? And what do we mean when we talk about inclusion? And a lot of these are words that we take, we've taken for a long time at face value. Like, oh, diversity. I know what, yeah, I know what diversity is. Um, that's when I think about women and right, sure. uh, people yeah. of different languages and ethnicities. Yeah. Um, I really wanted to test that. And, and we really wanted to push on that. that. Like that paradigm came from a demographic, almost kind of marketing mindset um, that we haven't really challenged and rethought in a long time. So what would it be if we thought about diversity from a human ability standpoint? You know, we all experience ever-changing diversity of abilities, right? Mm -hmm. um, so things like that, playing with um, what do we mean when we say inclusion, accessibility, diversity. And so with the toolkit is really, um, a design, it's a design artifact of that process. It's um, uh, having, um, des I think making accessibility accessible to designers mm -hmm. is about um, putting forth something that was visual and um, verbal to try to describe this concept. And so, you know, when we did that early work on, on the toolkit, it was about, you know, bringing that out to the design world even beyond Microsoft first, yeah. before we had done any kind of executive reviews or anything. Yeah. Like, put it out in the world, mm. and if there's a resonance back, sometimes that helps reinforce sure. to your executive leadership, so. even more so than you trying to, like, you know, beat the drum yourself and yeah. say that we believe this is important. So we extended out to, you know, August has an amazing network of, uh, of um, people in the design community. You know, I've come to um, really appreciate the universities that have been thinking about this space, the academia in the space. So going out and saying, okay, there's, there's a there there, and now let's bring this back um, with, with the extra reinforcements to leadership inside, yeah. of, inside of the company, um, you know, and then having real practical product examples where we've put it into practice and we've, you know, we've tried to, the principles that we outline in the toolkit are really drawn from doing this with dozens and dozens of different products inside and outside of Microsoft. And so one great example that August, um, I, lo I love when he tells the story and maybe you'll get a, you know, a chance to talk with him on this topic, I hope. Um, but, it, you know, he, he really challenged himself uh, 
he was the he was the director of Xbox at the time, um, to say, you know, how would I, how far can I get in this particular game? without the use of my headset, if I'm doing social gaming, right? Like Xbox Live is, is a social experience, but it requires a headset and it requires a microphone. And for the human, it requires the ability to hear and it requires the ability to speak. Um, so he, he played some, you know, quite a few games without his headset and found that he couldn't progress past certain levels or certain, um, what do they call them, drills, <laughs> like quests and yeah, I don't know anything about video gaming. I'm, I'm, I'm useless. I'm, I'm, uh, that's why you need to talk to August. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, you couldn't, he couldn't make progress because there's things that required cooperation, but that require, cooperation required that headset. Yeah. And um, so it, for, you know, what he did is then he and I partnered with his team to go through what a social gaming exclusion looks like. And in that sprint, we met with uh, people, you know, different degrees of hearing loss, people who are deaf, um, but we also met with um, uh, students and, and kids who are gamers, um, who had um, autism, and their parents, the nonverbal autistic, um, people who had limited use of their hands. So thinking about different elements of participation, like where you would be excluded in something that was highly verbal and highly um, auditory. So. In that process, on the other side of uh, that sprint, it was thinking the, the team came to, you know, how do we think about signifying socially mm. to other gamers, you know, that you're looking to play um, without headset? Like, you know, mm. how do you indicate, but without having to self identify, you know, it's a real concern in it, you know, self identifying as a particular gender or self identifying mm. as someone with a particular disability. Could you say, you know, this is a, I'm a gamer looking to play, but not having to talk about it, or you know, like, and so um, Xbox has this uh, couple of concepts: looking for groups and uh, clubs are mm -hmm. two uh, uh, products that the team had been working on, and we added the element of how do you think about that if you are trying to connect with other deaf gamers, or um, if you want to pair up with someone who you can then you know, supply those different skills in terms of, um, you know, learning. So you're not just left behind, you're, you're, you're brought along um, and, you know, fully participate in belonging in that game. Um, so specific product examples as part of that, yeah. um, bringing, bringing it to life, showing it, not just talking about it. And then, you know, um, the most uh, fortuitous uh, moment was when Satya became CEO of Microsoft. I mean, that along with the number of leaders who were passionate in this space, you know, executives who were, but Satya really took it to heart. I mean, he was one of the first, he was the first CEO to visit a design studio and kind of take oh, a wow. tour and, you know, get to know how we worked in the mm -hmm. space. Um, and in that visit, he, he sat with August and I and other leaders from our team, and really we talked about inclusive design as not just a, um, again, not the 20% edge case kind of thing, but this is the core of how we create new product, how we think about innovating on our experiences. And um, he, he just blew me out of the water because the he was right there in the next step and adding on and building to it with, you know, oh, so if we think about you know an operating system or something like you know a digital assistant like Cortana or Siri, like oh, how do we design that if we were to start, how we design that digital assistant, if we were to start by understanding how someone who's blind is going to interact with that digital assistant through all areas of their life. So him adding that in was, um, it was exhilarating because it's, it's a, it's again, it's that design 
um, verb, yeah. you know, that he was that verb, he's being that verb, he's been that kind of uh, yeah. a leader and making that uh, conversation, helping it move forward. Um, I'm guessing too, by making it a conversation and by being additive to the initial, mm-hmm. what the, the groundwork, the framework that you guys were putting together for inclusive design, that what that probably gave you is permission to yeah. think even bigger. That was the right. ultimate buy-in. Yeah, It does, yeah, it gives that, um, it, 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 uh, when it's built into the way that your CEO was talking about sure. the role of your company in the world is to empower every individual. And he specifically put the, the leadership team specifically said every person in every organization on the planet. Like they mm-hmm. did this like on the planet, nice. right? <laughs> it was like, wow. like nice. you have that on your you know, mission statement. It was really specific. Wow. Um, but to do that well and to do that with you know, integrity is a long game. That's not sure. something you flip the switch and suddenly it all you know, works beautifully. It takes a lot of time and work to get there. So that, that, um, what that does do is create, I think, a um, unified purpose for all of the um, employees yeah. in one company and that you can tie that purpose to a specific methodology. And you can show products that demonstrate that methodology in practice. Like that's a really um, amazing kind of combination and, and a great place to be a designer as well and help again facilitate and, and be a steward of that. Yeah. You know, what, how does that look in practice? Well, you have to do it to figure it out, and yeah. it takes time. So we want to hear about the kind of work you're doing today at Microsoft, right? So you know, inclusivity as a subject, as a methodology, was introduced. You had the buy-in of the CEO, mm-hmm. um, and you have your team now, mm-hmm. right? And your team is pretty unconventional. I, I yeah. think you describe it as more of a special ops group than a department, right? Like move, going around and like stewarding and facilitating this this design as a verb, yep. right? Yeah. Um, and you've had the opportunity to work with teams like Windows, Cortana, Xbox, HoloLens, which mm-hmm. is still mind-blowing to me. Um, but why was that team formed and exactly how does it operate? I want to really get to this concept of like special ops. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Our, our name at first, so it's, so let me, let me step back a second yeah. before I tell you what our name was. Um, the, the thing that, um, because we are such a large team, such a large company, but I think it also just comes to, it's not necessarily about the size, but how many different things are happening at any one mm-hmm. moment. I mean, there's billions of lines of code inside a product like a Microsoft, yeah. like a Windows. Um, there's thousands of people working on something like Cortana um, alone. So the um, thing that, that really, um, I've always had the, I guess, the great opportunity to work on is how, like asking that question of why, you know, there's so much to implement, there's so much to get done, but really being there with all these different teams and asking that question of why we do what we do. Um, and um, usually that was in the form of incubations, new projects, you know, worked on a lot of uh, things we see now, but I was working on them three to five years ago. Um, but what I found in every little incubation project I worked on, it was like methodology, like was was hard to connect. And so we just honestly invested. Like we just said, okay, how do we um, put this into some practice that we can articulate and repeat and demonstrate? So the very first name of my team was um, Activation, actually. So it was like wow. this. And uh, of course, nobody knew what that meant at the time. Um, but it, it was actually drawn more from like media um, companies where you're, you know, you're taking a a type of like a reason to exist and connecting it with 
how you're going to implement that in the world, whether yeah. it's your content or it's your product. And you got to activate somewhere. You got to be an activist for that. You have to, you know, understand what activation looks like. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the early stages are really about our role is to understand what those activation techniques are, but also to to fit and be with these different strategic elements, these strategic places in our product, um, you know, places where customers really need us to work quickly to figure out um, how to improve particular experiences, and then activate um, kind of uh, quickly some ways to put that in, that inclusion into practice. Um, you know, the uh, thing I've always tried to steer away from is being the envisioning team, or you know, there are great envisioning teams, but for for what we've been doing with inclusive design, it wasn't about imagining the future. It was about applying. You weren't a blue sky team. We are. Not blue sky. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's kind of, I think we have this in um, a lot of, I've seen in a lot of uh, different companies, you know, who, who gets to do the ideas and who has to do yeah. the implementation or who's the front end team and who's yeah. the, you know, production team. And um, what I love is a lot of that's breaking down is a lot of, especially, you know, um, smaller startups are, Saying you got you got to wear a lot of the hats. You got to get a lot of different things done. So, um, I, I think of it more as trying to bring that culture to lots of different areas of the product um, and um, having a criteria or a way, like as um, in partnership with the executive teams, to think about which areas are most important to yeah. start with. Um, so, when I say special ops, you know, it's that activation kind of element, and then it's um, Literally, we'll in, we'll partner with um, Office. You know, uh, you know the team that owns the first time you sign into Office, or the team that works on the social gaming um, features. We'll partner and, and embed ourselves for sometimes three days and sometimes three months, whatever it takes to bring that through to the other side. Yeah. And so we're a small we're a small team inside. I mean, we're uh, ten people okay. and. Um, but mighty, so it's like that. Yeah. You can you can do so much when you have a clarity of purpose and you have um, a focused way that you bring that. And, um, it and me then of you like have the seals. yeah, yeah the seals, and then you you have a whole community of people who are bought in and, and supportive and like from across the company. You know, not it's not easy to invite somebody else into your project, and yeah. you know, because you're not the expert. You're not the expert on the problem, but you the are expert. the expert on the process. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so, what point? So, can we take the Hololens as an example? Like, at what yeah. point did they engage you? At what point did you guys parachute in, and what did you bring to the table that they needed at that time? It's a great. It's a great example. So, because Hololens is, it is out. It's out there. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, I mean, it's here, but it's out but there. It's out. <laughs> it blows your mind, and not until you try it. But um, so, you know, there's, um, so I, I worked on HoloLens in some of the very, very early, early stages, early days. Again, there's a lot of people who did, but um, it was like five years ago. And um, some of that early thinking was purely about, um, you know, human ability. Like, we've been designing in flat, screen, you know, two dimensions for forever. How do we actually think about physics and of light and physics of uh, space and movement in something that's, you know, 
it's a virtual object here, but if I virtually push it off the table, it falls Incredible. and it breaks. Incredible. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah. um, you know, Alex Kipman and, and his whole talented, amazing, brilliant team of um, uh, creatives and technical skill, like it was a lot of it was talking about empathy, um, you know, when you can virtually kind of um, be in a room with another person not just face-to-face, -face, you know, screen time, but like yeah. there's actually, an, you know, there's Jared and this is where he's sitting, even if he's actually halfway across the country. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of elements, you know, that mo emotional connection is important and, yeah. and how, do you, how do you embody, you know, I'm gonna make an avatar of Jared, but how does that, uh, how do we make that human, but at the same time, not trying to just replicate the human. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that early on, you know, whether you want to call that inclusive design or just kind of thinking about human mm -hmm. um, factors and human behavior, um, so that was they, core in Hololens. Did they have the technology? They just didn't. Under, they didn't have the know-how on how to humanize it. Is that? I think they. It was emerging at the same time. Okay. I mean, it, yeah, there was, um, and there's. I guess um, I would describe it as for something that was. We uh, didn't know what it was going to be or how how it could work. Um, that was really, again, kind of to what purpose, to what um, outcome would this be important? What difference do we want this to make in the world? Mm -hmm. um, and now that you know the, the technology is in the hands of a lot of customers and developers and um, people are using it in different um, environments from education to retail, um, you know, now talking about again, that question of exclusion, like who's, okay, so who's excluded today? Like, is this an ongoing thing? Okay, so um, if I have, um, let's see, if I'm blind, what is the value of HoloLens to my experience? Well, there's a, it's about multi-dimensional space, right? Like it's, it's about the audio, the soundscape, um, the, uh, emotional kind of um, relationship to that sound and that environment. You know, how can HoloLens help us think about that depth and that connection? Um, it isn't just about the visual representation. Um, if I, uh, you know, am deaf, you know, how does it, how can the visualization of something like music, um, you know, help me learn an instrument or enjoy, um, you know, theatrical production, right? Like, and so this is where once you have that technology kind of platform um, in place, they start to think about all those different ways those experiences become possible when you think about it through the lens of exclusion. So there's different stages of it. Um, cool. So your special ops team, let's just call it that. Okay. Uh, we've already given the analogy parachutes into these teams yeah. at different moment, moments notice and helps yeah. them actuate some of the design principles that you guys are trying to push within the company, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, what our audience is probably going to be most curious about are examples of the processes that you actually deploy once you land, yeah. right? So imagining there, whether it's Windows or Cortana or whatever, you mm -hmm. land day one, what's the conversation that you're having with that project leader mm. and what are the things that you're actually having them do while you're with them? Mm -hmm. All right. Boots on the ground. Huh. So <laughs> what <Just> happens? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. So the the way that um, projects, essentially, we have so many projects we can work on at any moment. Mm -hmm. So the way the projects come in are often like an accessibility, like 
hair on fire. Like, I, you know, we have this problem we need to fix. Um, come help us think about so this problem. There's more reactive. There's, there are some that yeah. are, you know, we, we know we have something we have to work on. Um, so in something that's reactive, um, you know, the, often the first thing we do is, is, well, actually, any team that we work with, we require, um, any, it's okay. Uh, so any team that we work with, uh, we require that they meet kind of the, the fundamentals of Microsoft accessibility standards. So there's a very clear set of um, requirements for accessibility. That's like the baseline integrity kind of, um, and that's that's also like brushing your teeth. That's all. There's always something you have to kind of stay on top of and, and be working on to make sure that your accessibility is solid. Um, but uh, once that is there, then we're having then we're having conversation about okay. So what is the role of this feature or this product? You know, something um, like the first time you sign into Windows mm-hmm. is something we've been uh, playing with, and um, you know, the role of that feature is let's say like you know the first time you're meeting someone at a store. And so what are the important um, interactions that are going to happen? Those are the kind of questions we're asking. Like, what are the important interactions the first time you meet someone? Okay, well, you, you got to exchange certain types of information, and you, um, you, know, you need to kind of let people know what's going to happen. So all of these things we start to frame with the team and say, okay, these, these are important moments in that interaction. Now, we're not going to get to solving that yet. We're not going to jump to, okay, and then that means we need to create these kinds of uh, flows, you know, interaction flows. First, what we want to do is ask ourselves, who's excluded today from completing those interactions? You know, who is unable to do that independently? Who's going to feel excluded in that process? Um, so, you know, maybe someone who with low vision or who uses a screen reader because they're blind or they use um, speech or speech uh, dragon because they um, don't have use of their hands on the keyboard. Okay, so let's go and um, meet with people from all these different abilities and disabilities. But then the conversation to have is not purely, okay, tell me how to make sure that this works for right. your screen reader. The question you want to ask is, um, you know, what... What are the different kind of workarounds that you have today to um, you know, sign into your computer, but also when you go into a store for the first time yes. in the real world? And how do you get acquainted with the people there and the space there? And what are the questions you need to know? What's important? And by doing that and having those conversations with a, you know, sometimes 10 to 15 people um, is, is about, it gives you a good solid kind of representation. You learn things like, okay, there's important functional information. Like, I need to get my bearings, and I need to know where the, you know, the product is and the payment system. But I also want to know what kind of environment am I in. Like, I want to know the emotional information as well. I want to know, um, is it really crowded in here? Or is it, you know, uh, an old, cold, uh, um, you know, uh, modern concrete room because you know I hear different sounds you know like give me some emotional information to help me get acquainted and feel comfortable in that space so learning that first before we ever set into creating solutions helps ground people in both the functional and the emotional things to think about and it's also you know the steps that a human being goes through to get comfortable in the space then it's okay now that's kind of our, we would call that like the recognizing exclusion yeah. phase. The second stage is really about, um, you know, thinking about those mismatches. 
an interaction. Okay, so where did somebody want to uh, pay for their, I'm using the real world, like you know, the, in the physical world, pay for something, but the payment system was a touch screen, not a yeah. you know, human being. So there was no one to talk to, there was no physical kind of cue on how to interact with no the system. Yeah. Um, yeah, no affordance. So, you know, then, okay, that's a mismatch in interaction. Um, you know, so then what are the um, uh, things that you can start to resolve around that mismatch? Okay, providing some kind of affordance, you know, okay, this is what we're about to do. Here's my information, where is it going and how am I going to get there? And, you know, those things then become, you think about from an emotional and a physical lens at the same, or functional lens at the same time. So um, the mismatch, and then the, um, the last piece is really, we do like, as you would with any kind of, broad design exploration, like lots of different ways you could solve that. And then the last stage is really thinking about what will solve a problem, what will solve something for one person? You know, one of those subject matter experts that you met, um, you know, who experiences exclusion, solve it for that one person. What's also going to work for anybody who's got um, a situational or a temporary mismatch or disability as well? So doing that, drawing up, that's the part that I think the real magic comes in Mm -hmm. because it's, it's having to take a moment and say, oh, for someone who, um, you know, is, again, signing into Windows for the first time, they might be, um, uh, they might be blind. So this is about making sure that that experience is efficient and um, comfortable and, and um, uh, respectful. But that also for someone who is, um, you know, trying to, to do this sign-in in a very crowded environment or noisy, lots of stuff going on. Like if you're trying to sign this in and you've got uh, a lot of other responsibilities happening at the same time, you may only have uh, partial pieces of information or partial attention you can give to it, um, or you can't always be yeah. sitting here doing this, yeah. right? Um, so in that environment, it might also be helpful to be able to use your voice to navigate through and to have your computer telling you where it is in the process. Um, so it's, it's taking that, like, what you're really trying to achieve is bringing somebody into your product for the first time with a sense of belonging and independence. And, like, that's that motivation that's going to stretch across designing it well for those uh, people who are excluded, but then also the people who temporarily are unable to see or use their hands or also might be in a situation where um, they're unable to, to use those modes of interacting with the computer. So those steps, the recognizing exclusion, learning about those mismatches and the diversity of those, and then like drawing that, we call it a persona spectrum. Yeah. So, you know, we're trying to evolve, we're trying to think about like personas have value, but they also have limitations. And what we're finding is if you think about that continuum across ability, then that persona spectrum helps you think about the related um, uh, ways that people will benefit from an experience that you may think is designed for one person, but actually goes on to benefit many, many more people. And doing that in an intentional and repeatable way is something that we do with teams. So sometimes that's, um, we've, we've tried to condense that into a matter of four hours. That's pushing it. <laughs> Um, to just kind of help wow, people. So you, got, you guys do all that in day one. We well, we we can spread it out. We've we've done it in many different ways. Cool. So we're we're playing with. I mean, in the early days, it took us, you know, three weeks to get through that process yeah. with the team because it's like how how much of this do we have to do in different places? We're and getting at the end of the three weeks. There's deliverables. And the end of the week, three weeks. There's yeah. there are uh, prototypes. Yeah, um, still pretty quick. It's yeah, it's it, it's a, a big uh, change yeah. for. Um, um, but what's interesting is. 
the more we do that in more places, the more we can say, okay, this particular, you start to recognize, okay, there's yeah. a team, again, we we're talking about a team that's in a reactive place. The team's coming from like, hey, we um, you know, have this new idea, this new, you know, doesn't exist, hasn't existed anywhere before concept. Okay, well, you don't necessarily need to go through all that same kind of process. You can start maybe a little bit more with, okay, let's just go learn from many different um, abilities and disabilities that people have over time and what they're gonna encounter as they um, use this new experience. So there's, there's ways, I, I like to think of it more as modular. Yeah, and yeah. so we can take those Legos and we can say, okay, you need Lego A and L. But um, you know, if we just use those now, it's going to help you down the path. But we always try to start again with the foundation of like at least know your fundamentals of accessibility, yeah. and then also know that you know these are the three things: you know, recognize exclusion, learn from human diversity, yeah. and then like extend that from one to many people. And because I'd rather have you come out of that knowing how to do that for yourself. Yeah. The, and the Lego pieces there, uh, you're referring not to the process, right? Like pick, picking and choosing what parts of the process. Because processes tend to be thought of as linear, but they're hardly yeah. linear. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's certainly in my experience. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's where, you know, I, I literally take a picture of the toolkit in my head where it's mm -hmm. like this card and that card. And sometimes yeah. it's like you have a, a finished, you think you have a finished kind of thing you're ready to ship out yeah. in the world. We'll just take these two cards, we call them like a context mismatch cards. Like, okay, how well would that solution you, you made work with someone who's alone on the bus or in a crowded, you know, with a oh, group cool. of, with a group of friends. Uh, and do you guys pick, like, you, you pick these cards at random? Yeah, yeah, like we'll do them like a, cool. a, a so this is that, wow. Yeah, so we have things in there. It's almost That's like, awesome. Yeah. Is this like a meeting format? Come. Yeah, we'll do it in like a sprint or we'll, yeah. it's literally like, we'll, we just kind of ring them together and, and, you know, dedicate some time with the team to say, it's just like almost stress testing, yeah. but by context, you, okay, take them, it's all out there, Steve, <laughs> Yeah, that can be like a fun exercise for any yeah. team, just yeah. like write them down on a flashcard and just yeah. try. It's, it's, it's amazing, even just doing that piece yeah. sometimes, like, yeah. who, someone's using the product, but they can't see and they're in the snow. That's like, great. How, That's great. That's how great. are you going to make sure that it works? I want to keep talking. I, I, we got to go to community questions next. <laughs> sure, Honestly, yeah. there, there, this could be another hour. I, I, I wanted to get into I wanted to get into uh, persona spectrums. Like I'm fascinated by that. But let's yeah. get to community questions, okay? okay. Um, we reached out to the community and we asked them, "What's burning up inside you? What do you want to know about right now?" Okay. Um, we got a lot of a lot of questions back from them. We yeah. picked five. Okay. I'm asking every guest these five questions. Okay, so we're going to start okay. with this first question. Cool. How do you explain the role of design to people in your business? Oh, I thought you were going to say to my mom, because that's ah. way harder than <laughs> Sure, actually, that might be more interesting. You we might need to edit that question. How do you explain design to your mom? I like that. <laughs> it's kind of the same uh, conversation. Yeah, um, let's see. You know, I, I kind of... I kind of gave up on having to explain it. Like I gave up on trying to explain it okay. and and more demonstrating um, in in the moment. So um, if I tried to explain it, I would I would say the human. Everybody can relate to an area in their life where they you know they're like who who made like who wasn't thinking about a human being when they designed this car door or you know like this thing that keeps hitting me in the head every time I walk in and out of my house, like. That's kind of the most fundamental, like the the thinking about the human being mm -hmm. um, in the uh, choices that we make when we create environments. Um, that's that's my kind of most global 
definition of design. Um, when I describe it to my mom, it's more, uh, you know, okay, so you know me now, you hit, like, you open the car door and all the rain falls in? Okay, that's a, that was a bad design. But, <laughs> but yeah. the, you know, it wasn't because some person was like, boy, I'm really going to make sure that this door sucks and I want yeah. water to fall. It's because there's a lot of people that contributed to that door. There's yeah. a lot of people that contributed to all the elements around that. And the conversations between them aren't always aligned or healthy or, um, uh, sometimes exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so, you know, I'd say my role is to, um, facilitate that conversation in a way that, that aligns the purpose, that uh, aligns the um, requirements and the outcomes to make sure that that human being is considered, that we're mindful of that human being. And it's not just putting that human being in the center of the experience, but making sure that they're in the lead, they have a, a sense of control, they have a sense of um, propriety and ownership in, in the, the product or the environment that they're, uh, that they're working in. Yeah. Yeah. The next question is, how is the design team organized at your business? How's my team organized? Well, we, we can talk about the your team because yeah. we didn't really get into the oh, roles. design overall. Um, and then like design at Microsoft. Oh, let's see. Yeah. Um, there's, there's different business divisions. They're all very large teams. Like, um, you know, the Windows organization is a huge team and it encompasses um, Xbox and, and HoloLens and you know there's hardware teams so um, for every business there's a different mm. structure okay. um, there's a and I guess there's a hard structure and there's a, a soft structure the hard structure is you know most of the teams really um, pair with the engineering and the business kind of structures you know if there's an engineering team that's disseminated we'll often uh, have the design team kind of match that um if there's a large central core engineering team we'll have a, a large central kind of design team that, that goes with that as well um but those those hard structures are always changing especially in a a, a large company with a lot of different businesses um so the soft structure ends up being more important over time and that's the relationships that um, you know, leaders and designers from, from all levels are um, uh, working on relationships and the skills that they're bringing from one product. You know, what you learned in Xbox about behavior and, um, you know, uh, stages of navigation is going to be useful when you work on Office. And, you know, like finding those relationships and having a design community that understands all the products that are happening and how to um, cross-pollinate. That's, that's the part I love. It's, you know, I can do without the hard structure. It's the, uh, the human connection across that design community. And, um, you know, the, the leadership uh, role of design, I think, as it, you know, it's elevated inside of any team, yeah. um, is to be able to be fluid in that way and to be able to think about a lot of different places and a lot of different in, no matter what the organization is or the structure. So the next question, a lot of people out there are either the only designer in their company yeah. or one of two or three designers in their company. Mm -hmm. So put yourself in their shoes for a second. Mm -hmm. How would someone like that convince the business of the value of design? Mm. <clears throat> um, 
you know, there's, I think even inside of large organizations, there's a lot of times where a designer will feel isolated. Sure. Um, and the, I think the same is true there as it is for um, someone who maybe is in a company and the only um, design leader, the design leader in that space, um, is that, you, you know, you're not alone and the reinforcement for the value is not alone. Not alone. And um, I think I, I've met a lot of designers who kind of want to carry that burden themselves. Like, they, I, I have to carry the flag up the hill and, I want, you know, the, there's a, a table and I want to make sure I have a seat at the table, yeah. like yeah. The, the mythical table. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things, that, so I, I work with Albert Shum, um, who's um, uh, one of the VPs of design at, at Microsoft, worked with him for a long time. And the thing I always love that you said is like, either A, there is no table. Like, you know, it doesn't exist. Um, and so how do you, as a as a lone actor in that team, step into what are the business challenges and and you know treat that as a design problem or you know um, the the if you're feeling not included in a particular uh, set of decisions like okay well deconstruct that as a design problem like what what's missing how would you reframe that what is the research you need to do to understand what um, would make a difference. How would you design your, like just play with it, right? Like make it a design problem that you can play with. Um, you know, the other thing that, that then we also talk about is maybe there is a table, but you want to not just have a seat. You want to be able to, you know, design what that table is, what the shape of it is. Right. You want to be the place setting. Yeah. You want to write the yeah. menu for that table. Um, you know, then, then don't, you don't need, I'm saying this in a way that I hope, is empowering because you don't need permission. Like you, you don't need permission, and it's and it's um, it's not just about the object and the artifact that you deliver and, and and trying to sell the value of that. It's about the way you think, and if you can communicate the way you think as an aspect of, is a valuable asset. You know mm. the way you plan that menu, the way we get to that meal at the table, like the, that itself. Um, helps transform how people think about you as a designer, as your role and your value in the organization. Um, most people, I'm going to say, in, within the business world, in the engineering world, one of the greatest values that design can bring is to help people think about how they think. And um, it's think not, yeah, there's like, a, I think the word is metacognition, like nice. metacognition, right. but <laughs> thinking about how we think yeah. about our business, how we think about our engineering structure, like, you know, how we think about our political structures, our social structures, like that's the, the, um, the magic of, that's magic to other, other, to people who have not, um, experienced it. Experienced yeah. it. And so bring all that, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and work with your own role as a design challenge to, you know, how would you create that, that space? So the next question, assuming that the designer has brought this way of thinking to a business. Yeah. Um, how do they measure and present the results of the decisions that come out of it? Of the way of? Of this way of, of, this way of working and thinking. Because mm -hmm. the, the, the challenge for a lot of people is, well, the thing we hear a lot of designers say is that they don't know how to measure success for themselves, right? They work on these interfaces, they work on these designs, mm -hmm. and leadership is oftentimes looking back for a numerical metric. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Maybe it doesn't always exist, but like, how can someone actually present some sort of? That's right. such. It's such a good question. It's such a good question, and I haven't seen one answer mm-hmm. to that question. Um, you know, so, so it comes up in the context of inclusive design. It's come up in the context of accessibility for years as well. And I think it's interesting that those two um, disciplines, accessibility and design, kind of have that same challenge because um, there's a real risk in being the team that does something that's nice to do or even the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, being the team that's, you know, you got to do the right thing for the customer or you got to do the right thing for... Um, someone who's unable to use the product, and there's you can get far with that that approach or that like framing, but um, making what you do an economic imperative is really the it's the it's the two hundred million dollar question right now, right? Um, so what I've seen work is um, you have to again kind of. Draw the draw the threads and explore those threads. Um, for inclusive design, as an example, when you see something like you know the um, monthly active users or um, product satisfaction scores and and things that um, I think it's easy to kind of get put off by at first, but to really dive in and understand what's the design of that metric in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, how is an NPS constructed? A net promoter score mm-hmm. constructed. What does actually go into, um, uh, you know, the way the framing from a, a financial and from a business standpoint of of um, customer acquisition costs, right? Getting into that and then like start to draw out what are the, you know, do your own research. Like, what are the levers in the product? What are the exper- moments in the experience that affected that? You know, you think about something like. Net promoter score, and you're asking someone, "How likely are you to recommend this to a friend?" Um, <laughs> uh, you know, there are ways to. I've been playing with this, and I'm learning right now. But like, really, ways to get into. Oh, there are these moments in our experience when someone encountered that. You know, they upgraded to a new version of your application. But once you did that, you moved some feature or some element that they were familiar with to a new location or you nested it inside of something. And then suddenly they weren't able to find something that was incredibly important to them. And that had a tie back and a, a kick to your net promoter score. Like get curious about where that metric, what those metrics, why your business cares about those metrics, and then find, use your design you know, process, your, your design mind to um, get to, oh, those moments in the experience. Then you start to get to, okay, how can we build some metrics around that experience outcome? You know, what are the um, uh, ways to know that when we make a particular change, how well do we help people learn how to navigate and find that new feature or that new, um, uh, you know, we gave it a new name. Like, how do we help people know that it was that and now it's this? Those are the things where you can build out metrics. I've seen, you know, ways to start to do that that have a science-based relationship to a larger metric that may seem more abstract. Um, that's as best of an answer as I have. I'm on the quest, yeah. so I would love to hear from other folks um, as well, because it is a real opportunity, I think, yeah. but it's also a real challenge. Well, you'll hear from at least 25 people. Okay, great. <laughs> need 24 other people. I'm going to watch all of them, Yeah. I need, I need some other ideas. <laughs> so we can, we can end with this last question here. Okay. As the function of design starts to evolve, and it continues to evolve, mm-hmm. and, it ha- and it has been for like the last 15, 20 years, yeah. right? um, what are some of the roles 
and methodologies that you think will start to emerge over the next five years? Oh, five years. What happens in five years? Mm-hmm. What are some of the roles? Um, I mean, the, the, I, would, I would say, so my first one that comes to mind is the role of designer as facilitator and as leader. And, you know, I think um, it's not just a design thinking thing. Mm-hmm. It's someone who builds products, understands the thinking of the process of that product and can guide and, you know, kind of be a Sherpa for yeah. anyone to, you know, summit that process. So mm-hmm. that that role of facilitation of conversation, um, I think that's incredibly important, especially as we think about things that are um, more abstract and more system complexity. Um, real practically, I mean, it's it's you probably hear this from a lot of your interviews, thinking about machine learning, mm-hmm. um, data, driven decision-making, um, conversational interfaces, and artificial intelligence. Um, all of those are, uh, there's no, I don't know if there are, I don't think there's many programs you graduate with a degree in conversational <laughs> user interface, right? You, a degree in the design of artificial intelligence. Like um, you're today, I'm more likely to look for people who have a, a skill and a background in cognitive psychology and behavioral psychology to think about the design of uh, conversational interfaces or um, artificial intelligence. So, the, but we need design in those conversations. You know, we need design in, we need designers in the um, decisions that are made around all those technologies. Think about artificial intelligence and exclusion. You know, it's like you have a machine that's learning. Well, who's it learning from? Mm-hmm. And who designed it to learn in what way? Do they design it to learn in the way that they learn? You know, do they process with their own biases into the design of that AI? And so these are these are things that um, becomes more critical than ever. I think to have designers in that conversation, asking questions about the human being and the human impact, emotionally, emotionally, and also um, you know how people actually um, practically use something. Uh, that actually brings value to their to their lives. Well, well, thank you so much, Kat. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate those great questions. Hey, you made it to the end. Congratulations! Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes Store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that, that we covered with our guests, go on YouTube, go on Twitter. You can tweet us, you can leave us a comment. We'll get back to you, we'll help you as much as possible. At High Res Podcast. That's the the screen name or the handle for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook. Find us, talk to us, we wanna converse with you. Uh, We're not gonna leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel. They're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've gotta check out the team at Searle Video. It's searlevideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.